Welcome back to Emerge. On this episode, I'm joined by John Michael Greer. John is a prolific author uh, who I've known about for some years, uh, but his recent article series on the CAC Wars is the focus of our conversation today. This is a remarkable series that I encourage you to take a look at, and it forms the basis of the conversation that you'll be hearing today. Um, it's an account of how magic, esoteric magic, magic with a K, was used to influence the outcome of the 2016 election. It's a fascinating story, and it's an important lens through which to see our time. Uh, it helps make sense out of some of the forces that are at play in our cultural landscape, and in particular in the landscape of politics and in the fight for power and sociocultural transformation. Uh, I found this conversation to be very provocative. Um, I don't necessarily agree with all of the political positions that John shares in this episode, but I love having conversations like this that uh, help me kind of threaten or undermine the ways that I see the world. Um, I think it, it, it leads to a level of humility and open-mindedness. And so uh, I hope that you enjoy this conversation. I hope that it's provocative for you too. And if you'd like to support Emerge, you can do so by clicking on the link in the show notes or by going to anchor.fm slash emerge and clicking on the button that seems like it's the one you click on if you want to support the show. Okay, enjoy the episode. Welcome back to another episode of Emerge. This time on the show, I'm welcoming for the first time John Michael Greer. Uh, John is a widely read author and blogger whose work focuses on the overlaps between ecology, spirituality, and the future of industrial society. And if you ever want to feel, uh, you know, uh, very impressed with the, the body of work of somebody, I, I highly recommend you check out all of the various works that he's done. They, they run a very wide gamut of kind of orientations and explorations from spirituality to paranormal phenomenon to peak oil um, and everything that you might imagine existing between those various spaces. I, I first uh, learned about John, your work from uh, James Howard Kunstler, when I was kind of falling into a peak oil rabbit hole, which, you know, I, I think is, is, is a rabbit hole worth falling into, but it's a kind of depressing place to spend all of your time. Uh, and so, you know, I, 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 I explored your work a little bit from that perspective, but then more recently uh, got back into your writing um, because of a recent series that you released uh, called The Keck Wars, which is a four-part series mm -hmm. that explores how, mm, I, I guess we might say, how the occult and magic influenced the outcome of the 2016 
uh, U.S. presidential election. And, and, you know, I and many of my friends who I shared this with uh, found these are these this series incredibly provocative and just kind of like a way into seeing some of the underlying patterns that were at play in this election that for many people, depending on their kind of sense-making strategies of current events, just kind of knocked them over the head and, and made them feel like they didn't know which way was up. <laughs> and so I was hoping that we could kind of explore how we might make sense of the 2016 election and all, all of this that was going on from a kind of magical perspective. And, and so uh, thank you for coming on the show. Welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. Um, thank you also for your kind words about my writing and so on. It's, it, I, I suppose it's that I get bored easily. And so I tend to say, okay, what do I want to look into next? I, I agree with you about the peak oil rabbit hole. It's an important thing to study. But uh, you know, at a certain point, you've, everything that's been said about it um, has been said. Mm. And it's time to go on to other things. Thus, uh, a lot of my recent political writings and thus this whole exploration of the, of the intersection between um, magic and popular spirituality on the one side and um, bare-knuckle politics on the other that ended up with the Keck Wars and with variety, a variety of other things. Um, let's see. To make sense of, the, pre- of the, the 2016 presidential election, you have to, you have to start with the, an assumption, which is generally a useful one in America today, that both sides are lying through their teeth. Yes. <laughs> just, yeah. Okay, just we have to. There, there, there are no good guys in this story. There are no. There, there's no. You know, glowing, shining vision of truth and justice and purity. Uh, running for president, mm-hmm. we had a we had a run for president between. You know, we we had a, as usual a, a contest between two profoundly corrupt parties, each of which is primarily interested in supporting its own. You know, the power and wealth of its own um, its own constituencies. And um, both of which were, um, well, well, one of which was trying to do what presidential campaigns have been doing for a long time now. Um, take, we'll, we'll take Barack Obama's successful campaign in 2008 as the great example. Hope, change, mm. yes, we can. What the heck do these things mean? What do they amount to in terms of policies, in terms of what we can expect from a presidency? Nothing, nada. Mm. They're noise. They're specifically, they're incantations. Mm. And uh, Obama was extremely good. He was, he, was a good, he was good at a certain kind of incantation. He was good at making a lot of people feel this warm, fuzzy glow that, that everything was going to be all right. And, um, you know, s- smiling Barack Obama was going to lead us some, to some glorious future not otherwise defined. Right. And, you know, he just, but, but he was, he was really good at using these, these, these meaningless incantations to whip up that emotional state and get people, um, and especially get people of, of, a, of certain classes, um, to be, to fall in line behind him, mm. even though he was actually offering them anything different. Well, one of the things that you said, and, and I, I don't know that most of my audience will be too familiar with this kind of more, um, I, I guess we might say like kind of postmodern understanding of what magic is or, or the, this kind of, so uh, you said it in, in the first article um, that you're kind of playing with this definition of magic is the art and science of causing changes in consciousness in accordance with will which is mm-hmm. kind of broad enough definition to include clearly, you know, 
campaigns, political campaigns, mm-hmm. but also things like marketing and all of the different facets of how we try to persuade others to see the world the way we see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, now, the thing to keep in mind is that although this definition fits a kind of postmodern sensibility very well, it actually was, was come up with back in in the 1920s, mm. uh, Dion Fortune, who was one of the, one of the great um, 20th century occult teachers and practitioners, um, that was her working definition of, of magic. And so the, the thing that it points out that's very useful is that magic is, I mean, magic is not Harry Potter. Okay. Yeah. No magician ever picked up a wand, pointed it somewhere, said ungrammaticus latinus or something, <laughs> something gibberish like that, and had a lightning bolt fly out of their wand. Okay. It does work that way. That's not magic. That's Hollywood. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I always have to mention that to people because everyone that's that's the context people've got. Yeah, yeah. But magic is about magic is about shaping consciousness. It's about shaping consciousness using a variety of means, some of which are currently accepted by modern science, some of which aren't. They all work. Uh, scientists just have hang-ups about certain things, and that's fine. We'll get over, get over it eventually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think what's what's important to notice in this kind of definition of magic is that you are always you're already like performing within the domain of magic. It's almost an ine- it's an inevitable part of being human and interacting with other humans. But Absolutely. there is a difference then between you know, doing things within the domain of magic as we understand it and being kind of meta conscious of the fact that you are performing magic, which is mm-hmm. more where we're going to be driving mm-hmm. this conversation. But in any case, you know, so so we're, we're, you're applying this frame of understanding presidential elections in general as kind of incantations and opportunities to perform mm-hmm. magic on the public. But continue, uh, please, please go on with that kind of analysis. Okay. Well, the, th- the, thing, is, the thing is, they vary. Um, basically, it varies in the amount of incantation versus um like substance Mm. you have political campaigns that are about substance where there's substantive issues being debated uh there are actual policies in play and the way of causing change in consciousness that plays the most importance are things like rhetoric and uh, communicative skills and things like that then you have the kind of the kind of political magic you get when all of the sides are actually in favor of the same things and it's just a personality context mm. a contest um we saw this with obama he had there was this whole hopey changey business and then he got into office and he copied all the all of the policies of george w bush mm. he just doubled down on everything that bush everything the democrats have been shrieking about for eight years Barack Obama started doing the Democrats said, isn't it wonderful? You know, now it's a Democratic president who's blowing the crap out of wedding parties on the other side of the world or what have you. Um, but the, the problem here was precisely that the entire, well, okay, I'm going to introduce a concept here, the political class. Mm-hmm. Okay, the political class of a society are the people who are actively involved in politics, the people who have enough influence to make their voices heard. Um, it's a very large sort of diffused group of people. <clears throat> It's always a minority. That's true even in, in a, you know, a relatively open democracy. Mm. <clears throat> Excuse me. There are a lot of people who, who simply they, they aren't interested or they don't have time. They're, you know, they're spending too much time working. They've got other concerns. Most, for mo- most people are outside the political class. But within the political class, up until 2015, for quite a few decades, there had been total consensus on what um, political economic, military policies the United States should follow. And it was purely a matter of prancing around and finding little point issues on which you could, they could pretend to have arguments. Mm-hmm. And so that was what was going on. We had, 
we had basically one political party divided into two halves that were constantly squabbling. And so you had the Democrats who would throw a few crumbs to the environmental movement, who would throw a few crumbs to ethnic minorities, who'd, who, could few, who would throw a few crumbs to, um, gay, to gay and lesbian people and so on. And then you had the Republicans on the other side who were now and again throwing a few crumbs to the evangelicals, throwing a few crumbs to gun owners and to their captive constituencies. And in that kind of context, when you're not, a, you're not actually interested in change, you, you, the gravy train is rolling and you just want to keep doing what you're doing in the political class, this kind of incantation-based campaign is very mm. effective. And this is what Donald Trump, through a monkey <laughs> wrench into, when he started campaigning in 2015, because he was not talk, he was talking about policies, and he was talking about policies that were completely outside of the conventional wisdom of the accepted consensus of the political class. Now, okay, a little bit of a little bit of socioeconomic material to go on here. Um, that, that's, that's actually crucial to this story, which is that during the 40 years or so that. We We've had neoliberal economics in place and, and the, the, the specific set of policies that we've been following for these last 40 years up until, up until you know, 2017. Um, the American working class has been destroyed. Mm-hmm. Okay? When, I, when I was young, when I was a kid, okay, okay, a family of four with one working class income could own, could could have a house. They could have a car. They could have three square meals a day. They could have all the ordinary things that we tend to think American families have. Um, now, or actually up until say in 2016, because things have actually picked up sharply since then, a, for, a, a working class family of four on, with one working class income was typically living on the street. Yeah, we watched the destruction of the single largest economic sector of the American people. And it was done by exactly those policies that everybody in the political class was very much in favor of. On the one hand, um, free trade policies that allowed employers to offshore all their production overseas. Um, Unlimited illegal immigration producing a huge underclass in the labor force that could be exploited with impunity to drive down wages and and, and, and working conditions. And hyper-regulation regulation of every economic activity, which the really big corporations can get out from under, but your small businesses can't, which was meant to centralize wealth in the hands of the big corporations. Those were the big three policies. Everybody agreed on them. Everybody, you know, people would, uh, would pick at little details, but that was the conventional wisdom. Trump shows up. Trump shows up and says, no, we're going to change all three of those things. We're going to actually deregulate, not go through the, the sort of Republican two-step where we repeal two regulations and pass five more. We're going to enforce our, our, our immigration laws. We're going to use tariffs to, act, to prevent people from um, offshoring jobs. And of course, the political class melted down. Mm-hmm. This is where the magic starts coming in, okay? Because you have this very explosive political situation. You have an outsider who's talking about some steps that could actually help a very large number of Americans who've been getting the short end of the stick for 40 years. You have the political class, um, by and large, uniting around a bunch of um, business-as-usual candidates, ultimately around Hillary Clinton. And you have a lot of people out there in the fringes, a lot of people out there who are not doing, who have not been doing too well, people who have been uh, stigmatized as losers because they aren't among the small number of people who are winning 
in the current under the current scheme, and some of them practice magic. Mm. So that's kind of our setup. Right. That's the situation we've got as as we move into the opening of the Keck Wars. Is there anything you want anything you want us to cover before we go on? Well, just to name like you know th- that that we're kind of exploring the breakdown of this political and I would say kind of uh, meaning making consensus. The Jordan Greenhall, if you're familiar with his work, calls it the Blue Church, right? This kind of uh, alliance between the media, academia. Um, and, you know, the mm-hmm. Democratic Party and, and also the Republican Party, I think you're pointing to, you know, there's a kind mm-hmm. of naive political consensus, sense-making consensus. And, you know, I think it, 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 you make a very good case, too, that, that perhaps this, this sort of breakdown in that ability to maintain that consensus, uh, you know, the rupture, it's interesting, emerged out of the chance which as an, you know, as an internet user for many, many years, you know, it makes sense to me that that is where the rupture would mm-hmm. begin and the fracture yeah. would begin. Yeah, it was going to, it was going to happen somewhere in outsider culture. Yeah. Um, one of the things that you get in a society that's, that's intellectually fossilized, that has the equivalent of the blue church, that's a good term, that's a very useful term, but that has one established way of looking at the world, which of course greatly benefits the people in power, people in the political class, and usually screws everyone else. Um, You get outsider culture. You get the people who are stigmatized as losers, the people who either didn't compete or couldn't compete or got shoved off anyway. Um, And they end up somewhere on the fringes. And, you know, depending on what the technology of the time permits. Mm. In in, uh, France before the French Revolution, coffee houses mm-hmm. you have these little coffee houses scattered all over paris and every other significant city in france where people would just get together and hang out and you had the equivalent of the, of the guy the guys going to the chance who would sit around the coffee house and sip coffee and talk and that's where the ideas that made the french revolution happen were born mm-hmm. in russia um before the russian revolution it wasn't in russia at all what happened was young russians who were interested in these things would leave the country Typically, they'd arrange to go to Germany or someplace to go to university, and they just neglect to come home. Mm. And um, and you have, so you had these communities of impoverished Russian students scattered all over Europe, and they'd sit around and talk. And that's where the Russian Revolution came from. Mm. This kind of thing happens all the time. It happened. I mean, the American Revolution was was um, was brewed up in in a, in a Boston pub, basically. Um, that's the way these things happen. We've got the internet at this point. And so the Chans, of course, which started out as, as, I mean, originally they spun off of a place to talk about, about anime. Um, and they turned into a place where people together get together and talk, a place for outsider culture to blossom, for people to be able to critique the existing order of things and to think thoughts that were not permitted mm-hmm. inside the Blue Church. And so you get and a lot of the things that were going on in the Chans were garbage, frankly. Right. Totally. Totally. Um, you have, you know, <laughs> yeah. To, yeah, yeah. I mean, you have, you have, you have uh, the the nineteenth century pseudoscience the, the, of mm-hmm. of you know of race and that kind of stuff. You have all kinds of crud like that. But this is this is what happens in outsider culture. People, whatever is rejected by the mainstream culture, the outsider culture jumps onto. Be careful what you reject. 
Right, right. So, and at the very least, there's this kind yeah. of like, for, like this kind of experimentation, this kind of ferment that's happening that, you know, from my perspective as a Reddit user, you know, all the good memes, all the funny memes came from the chans because there was just so much activity there, so much turning over, so much experimentation. And uh, yeah, so it's, the, the, the chans serve a really interesting kind of ecological niche, I think, in the wider internet culture. And just to just to uh, make it clear for folks listening, 4chan is the most popular and well-known of the chans, but there's actually, I, I know of at least like three, right? There's 4chan, 8chan, what was, there was you mentioned another one in the article, but there's, there's many of them, right, at this point? There's a whole bunch of them, and there are, a lot of, there are a lot of forms that have spun off from the chans, and you have to know someone. This is what I'm told. I, I am not. I am not a habitué of, of these circles. But I, I've had people coming onto onto my blog, and I've been in contact with people who were very deeply mm. into some of the in, involved in some of these things. And yeah, there's a whole network of this stuff going on, and and yeah, it 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 does serve a, a classic ecological function. You know, this, this is the these are the fringes where new ventures come. These are this is where. The conventional wisdom no longer applies. Anything goes. There are no, you know, no limits, no sense of propriety. It just cut loose. And so you produce an incredible amount of garbage and incredible amount of just plain weirdness and all the new ideas. Yeah. <laughs> As you yeah. say, all, all the really funny. I mean, Fort Chan was where the lol cat was invented. Yes, right. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. You know, you, you can't hardly you can't hardly find, you know, anything on the internet. The, you, you go to the internet, you're going to have a you're going to have a lol cat or some other meme like that. They're the ones who 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 invented that. They did a lot of this stuff. Totally. I th- I think it's such a, so important. So important to say, just sorry, really quick, is, is it, you know, you might really think you don't like the chans because of, you know, their involvement with Trump or you think they're racist. But if you like memes and you like lolcats, then you have to also appreciate the good and the, exactly. uh, at least the, the, the hilarious that they produce. Yeah. So, you know, it's a more complex phenomenon than just being like the sewer of the internet. Thank you. How it, it often gets portrayed. And, and, and he, he, yeah. And, and here's the thing. One of the things that that you, one of the signs you want to look for, if you're worried that your society is sinking into intellectual fossilization, is this extreme moralizing. The idea that um, pe- people are good, in which case they're all good, and nothing they can do can possibly be criticized, or they're bad. And if they're bad, everything they've done is evilly evil with a double helping of evil sauce on the side. Mm-hmm. That. Extreme moral dualism shows you the, that you've got a you've got a society with its head stuck someplace biologically improbable. Okay, <laughs> and um, and of course we have an extreme case of that now in the, in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea, I mean, you get the idea where if you can find some something that a an author or a a, a personality, a media person, you can find something they did wrong, then everything they've ever done is evil, and they should be cast out with whaling and gnashing of teeth and tarred and feathered and, and you know it becomes it's it's very puritan right and so it, we're it, this whole kind of all these ingredients are present right at this moment that trump comes on the scene and mm-hmm. first at some point um i'm not and i'm not sure if you if you know when it was like uh, when did, did is there a, an account of when trump kind of got into the chans and he started being something that they were turning over and playing with or, i I have not been able. I've not been able to tra- trace the first Trump-related post on the chance. That would take a lot of digging. Sure. But 
the the thing is Trump was a natural for the chance because he I mean a reality TV star running for president right there mm. they, they're going to be all over that the the irony of that the the, ne- the multiple nested ironies um and and you know he is so outspoken and frankly such a blowhard mm-hmm. he, he 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 himself violates half the rules, half these sort of accepted rules, not only of politics but of ordinary discourse in the in the classes to which he, he you know is, is <laughs> yeah. to which he more or less belongs. So so you know they would have scooped him up right away. But the other factor is precisely that. On, well, the other factors on the one hand that he was doing an in-your-face attack against the conventional wisdom. So of course the chants were going, mm-hmm. he's our boy. And then there was the fact that he was directing an assault, he was directing his you know much of his campaign against precisely those policies that ensured that so many of these guys were stuck living in mom's in mom's basement next to the washing machine because there were no there were, there were drastically insufficient jobs um and all of the the other things that have held the that have, that have moved the American economy outside of the outside of the upper classes that just grounded down the American economy over the last forty years. Right. And, you know, the, the, the habitualists of the chance are not stupid. And since being outside of the um, political, the sort of political group think, they were able to look at these policies, put, connect the dots and say, you know, that makes sense. Mm. And so fairly early on um, in, in 2015, when the campaign was just getting underway, um, first it was stuff on Trump being splashed on. Ah, isn't that funny? And then it was. Did you hear what he said? Hmm. And before long, he was, he was their fair-haired boy. And um, lots of people were um, getting very excited about, about Donald Trump's campaign, especially because of his opponents. Hmm. You know, he, he, some people are very lucky in who in opponents are. And Donald Trump has, was hugely lucky there because, on the one hand, the Republicans ran probably the... the <sighs> The most pathetic crew of potential presidential candidates. I mean, if they had gone looking, you know, I can imagine uh, the, the GOP collectively going down to Hollywood Central Casting and say, we need a nerd. We need a loser. We need somebody who inspires, you know, um, uh, on, the sca- on a scale of one to ten, the charisma needs to be about negative two. Um, find us some people. Well, we'd have gotten the Republican Party's anointed 2016 candidates uh, with Jeb Bush mm. and Jeb Bush leading the pack. Okay. And so, I mean, against, against that crew, Donald Trump couldn't help but stand out. Right. And then the Democratic Party did him and the Republicans probably the greatest favor they've ever received and cheated six ways from Sunday to get Hillary Clinton as their, uh, you know, as, as their candidate against him, um, Bernie Sanders would have cleaned would have cleaned Trump's clock. Yeah. If Bernie Sanders had, if 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 the hmm. Democrats had run the election in, in the, the primary election in a fair manner, Bernie Sanders would be president right now, and probably both houses of Congress, you know, would have been Democratic could uh, would have you know ended up with Democrat majorities just in his coattails. So they shot themselves through both cheeks, and I don't mean the ones in their face. Um, <laughs> They shot, they shot themselves through both cheeks, you know, um, forcing, you know, cheating every six weeks from Sunday to keep Bernie Sanders from getting the nomination. And what they got was 
one of the least charismatic figures in American public life, um, a person with an immense amount of, of political baggage, um, a person with the absolute absence of new ideas, and somebody who had no idea how to campaign. Mm-hmm. So they, it, they really went the perfect out perfect storm. Yeah, a perfect a, per, yeah. a perfect storm. Just you know, if they if they had wanted to hand the White House to Donald Trump on you know on a platter, I don't know they could have done a better job. But so this was the situ this was a situation going on. And and there were some there were some there were some magical aspects to that also. But yes. let's see, it was in it was in mid 2015, as far as I've been able to find, that some people on one of the chains I've heard stories as to exactly where this happened started finding out about this about this this system of practice called chaos magic. Mm. And. That's kind of a that's kind of a you know zooming off to one side too. We just it's it's an avant-garde branch of magic. It tends to use it tends to be very very postmodern, very ironic. Mm-hmm. Um, uses a uses a very simplified set of magical practices. It's nothing like as complex or as as hard to learn as a lot of the more traditional systems of magic. And it can be fairly effective if you you know if you, if you work hard at it, like any other magical thing. Um, you know, magic is not. Um, you wave your wand and stuff just happens. It is hard work. It's heavy lifting, right. but you can make things happen that way. And there were a lot of people in on the chans who were ready to do something, who knew their way around memes, who had a fair grasp of symbolism, who had um, increasingly a lot of passion directed at Donald Trump. They wanted to see him win. And and somebody hands, you know, hands in the tools of chaos magic. <laughs> and so they start doing working. They started, which is you know what what operative magicians call you know, when people who aren't magicians talk about spells, people mm-hmm. who are magicians talk about workings. Okay, mm-hmm. and so so they start doing workings, and a lot of them start doing workings. Uh, I don't know that any, I don't I don't have any numbers. I don't know that anyone's had numbers, but there seems to be there there were, there was a lot of stuff going on there, and Donald Trump proceeded to rise steadily in the polls. And the further he went, the more excited the chans got. And the more excited the chans got, the further he went. And that's where things started getting weird. Mm. Yeah, and, and, and uh, just, just to say, like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fam- chaos magic is the form of magic that I'm most familiar with. Um, and, and I think, it, it, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll link to a kind of like PDF I found on DeviantArt about chaos magic. That's really well done. Um, that'd be great. So you, if you, if you, if you don't, if you aren't familiar and you want to learn more, you can do that. But in a, it, like when, when you're saying workings, that's things like kind of creating memes or sigils of various kinds and trying to kind of empower different um, symbols, right, on behalf of a certain objective. Exactly. It's basic, basically the way magic works is you create a symbolic representation of something you want to have happen. And you know, symbolic representation. What does that mean? It can mean almost anything. It can be it can be a chant. It can be a talisman. It can be a statue that you that you energize the power. It can be a meme. It can be a sigil, which is a kind of geometrical squiggle that you use to to embody your intention. Anything. Um, and there there are known ways. There are ways that have been worked out down through thousands of years to um, to create these things and then to direct energy into them. To I say energy. It's a metaphor. Okay, but. There's something that there is something that corresponds to the concept of magical energy. We don't know what it is. We know that it works, and there are various ways you can direct that into the symbolic representation you make. And the more powerfully you do that, the more it starts to shape the way other people think. Mm. Because 
when you're causing change in consciousness in accordance with will, you're not just causing change in your own consciousness. It, it permeates. It spreads. And so you have all these people, um, again, doing chaos magic. Typically, they'll be making sigils. Okay. And some of those sigils may be coded into memes. <laughs> okay. They may assemble a picture that is actually a sigil, but it doesn't look like one. But anyway, they're doing these things and they're doing these workings to charge these things with psychological, emotional, magical energy so that they have an effect on other people's thinking. So here that you have all these guys, all the most, most, most of the young men. Okay. So you have, you have all these young men piling force into that mm. effort, you know, um, driven by their own um, wretched economic status in the failing economy we've had, um, and their own sense of grievance, and their own sense of being an outsider, being thrown, being thrown aside with the garbage. And so they've got a lot of emotional energy to put into the work. And there's, they, you know, so the chants are pumping this stuff out right and left, and weird things start happening. And now, there some some of it was really simple. Um, every post on one of the Chan bulletin boards has a randomly assigned number, and they're they're sequential, okay. So, but you, but there's all there's so much stuff coming. You have no way of knowing what number you're going to get. And there was this little habit of looking for doubles, you know, double numbers, tripled numbers, things like that, dubs, trips, and so on. There was a whole this, what started out as a joke and then turned into a kind of contest. You know, who was going to get what number and people notice that whenever somebody mentioned Donald Trump their chances of getting a get of getting a series of, of numbers went way up mm. and at levels way above statistical chance and of course the, the classic one was the the one where somebody just in the middle of a, of a random a random flurry of you know People posting stuff. The guy who posted Trump will win, and it, and the number was seven 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 seven. That was the point where everyone went whoa. Mm -hmm. But there was that. There was uh, there was Pepe the Frog, who had basically become the chance mascot anyway. Um, and the whole, all of the the confusions around that, and people suddenly realizing that, uh, noticing that Keck of of course, the term for laughter, kek, 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 was the name of an Egyptian frog god. And the, the appearance of the song, Chatelet, the Europop song from the 80s that had a frog with a magic wand on the cover and things, and it was by a band named P-E-P-E. -E. And all of these cascading coincidences. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, th you know, this is so fascinating, right? And not just an Egyptian god, but like, it's a, it's a frog god, right, of... of of chaos. It's a, it's a frog god, yeah. Of chaos. Yeah, kick, right? <laughs> kick, yeah. Well, it's, it's specifically the, this is this is one of a particular set of deities in Egyptian mythology which have the job of taking chaos and making the world out of it. Mm. Okay. And so there are there there are some frog gods and there's some uh, let's see. I can't, there's Kek and there's Keket, who is his his mate, his I'll use a fancy word here, his syzygy, his female female equivalent in energy. And um, he's a frog, she's a snake. Don't ask me how that works. The Egyptians had their own way of thinking about such things. But um, but yeah, he's the one who brings the world out of chaos and she's the one who finishes the process of establishing it. Mm. Got this this but this power of bringing bringing something new into being out of chaos. So it's not it's chaos, but it's chaos going someplace 
And so, yeah, very well. It's like really crazy, though. I mean, looking in from the outside, I mean, Pepe was the first kind of uh, uh, artifact that I encountered because I'm not a, a user of the Chans, but, you know, I'm, I'm, you bet it, so I'm kind of close to it, closer than a lot of the mainstream. And like the whole, th- <laughs> like I had heard from about Keck, right? And then it's like they were using this term Keck and using Pepe the Frog and, and it, they didn't yet know that it was actually a part of this whole mythos that they then un, un they found after the fact. Like this is a, a crazy synchronicity, right? Exactly. The, the thing, and that's the right word, of course. Um, Carl Jung um, and Wolfgang, Wolfgang Pauli, who was a Nobel winning physicist, wrote this book called Synchronicity, discussing the way that meaningful coincidences cluster around certain kinds of, of phenomena, certain kinds of psychological phenomena. <clears throat> magic is full of synchronicity. In fact, one, one workable definition of magic is the, you know, the production of, of synchronicities in accordance with will. Mm-hmm. If your magic is going well, strange coincidences follow you around like cats following someone with an ca- open can of tuna. <laughs> and and, and that's, what, that's what was happening. They were just getting one of these things after another another. And of course, that was when they threw all of their energy into the goal of making Hillary Clinton collapse in public. Mm. Because there, there were all kinds of rumors that you'll remember flying around about her health. And, and then she did. And that same day was the day that she had talked about Pepe the Frog and Keck uh, and so on, on in a speech. She actually gave them free publicity, and they were going, "Thank you, Keck." <laughs> and um, and then that same day, she's going, you know, from the nine eleven memorial, and goes down like a sack of potatoes, and uh. has to be carried on onto her, you know, into her SUV. And so they're just the from what I've heard from the people who were there at the time, they were all just kind of looking at each other, going, "This is scary." Let's right. do more of it. <laughs> right, right. Well, I, would, I guess I want to spend a little bit of time just exploring what you know about what it was like to participate in those communities at that time. Because like my my sense, having you know, spent a little bit of time bumping around in, in, in the chance, it's like, it's, it, I can't imagine that they at least started being like believers of an ancient Egyptian god or even the idea of doing the magic might have been done somewhat ironically. But that if these synchronicities oh, yeah. pile up that they might have been like, mm-hmm. okay, like I guess this works mm-hmm. now. And then yeah. maybe that changed the way they're related to it. Or what, do you have a sense of that kind of ongoing relationship? Let's see. Start. I, I started um, dropping into dropping in and lurking on a couple of the chans on um, in the spring of 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, January 2016, I predicted that Trump was going to win, mm. and um, for a variety of reasons, and um, that that brought a number of people onto my blog who were who were um, habitués of the chans and who were going, "Whoa, this guy thinks Trump's going to win," and he has this whole argument as to why. Interesting, but they they were, they were I mean, despite the stereotype, they were very polite. Mm-hmm. They were not annoying. I mean, the 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 people I get who come crashing onto my blog to. Scream are almost all from the far left. Mm. Um, I used to have some neo-Nazis who did it from time to time, but they've gone away. Um, but you know, the, the alt-writers who came, they, they, were, they were curious, they were interested, they were well-spoken. And in the course of talking with them, I figured out something really interesting was going on on the Chens, and so I did some snooping around and started lurking from time to time. And I just you know go there and read 
read the last um, you know few hours, which is as much as I had time to, because right. they're very busy. And you're going to the specifically the politically incorrect forums on there. And yeah, it started out as oh yeah, it's for the wolves. Let's do a sigil. That'll be fun. Mm-hmm. And then then the gets were piling up, and the synchronicity started. What's this about this Egyptian god? And he's a god of what? And uh, mm-hmm. uh, and by the time things were moving fast, there were a lot of people who were still doing it ironically, but they were doing it. And there were a significant number of people who were uh, on the chance, who, as far as I can tell, I mean, to the extent that you can tell from reading something on an internet forum, they were into it. They were mm-hmm. seriously into it. And then Trump won. And there was this shockwave. I mean, we all saw the shockwave across the country, but um, I, the next day, um, next morning, I went to the, the specific politically incorrect channel forum that I was mostly frequenting at that time. And, and people were just going, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> what, what, what have we done? Mm. And, but, but yeah, the, um, a lot of people in that, you know, went through that process and saw the completely unthinkable happen. The entire U.S. political class defeated by a complete outsider, um, who actually spoke to the needs of, 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 you know, the majority of working class Americans and, a bunch of you know uh, internet slackers and a cartoon frog, and so in fact, one of the things that I've seen happen since then, um, both in by way of things that I have connected to and I've heard from other people in the magic scene, is a significant number of people who had been hanging out on the chans, and you know whether or not they were into the politics or not, they were hanging out there. They saw what happens, and now they're showing up at the various you know places where you can get training in magic, mm-hmm. going uh. I need to know what I'm doing. Mm. This is scary stuff. I want to know what I want to. So, mm. so yeah, I think you're quite right that a lot of people, who, you know, started out it was just the lulls, and then it worked, and then it worked, and then it kept on working, and then Donald Trump was, you know, sitting sitting up there giving his acceptance speech. Right, right, and I think that well, and it's, and again, it's this like image of a perfect storm that keeps coming to my head because like. Mm-hmm. You know, you say in the article that magic is the politics of the excluded, which, you know, makes a lot of sense. You know, when you deprive people mm-hmm. of, you know, traditional modes of discourse, they have to turn to some ulterior mode. Mm-hmm. And magic exactly. is a very, like, kind of, it's, it's, it's oddly accessible because you can't really, it's, there's nothing you can do to prohibit somebody from playing with their own consciousness, in a sense. Exactly. Uh, and and yet, you know, so if magic is the politics of the excluded, but this was the first time, perhaps in history, where there was a there was a, a candidate who spoke to the those that were excluded, and then the excluded had access to like the 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 this uh, uh, media machine, this this sense making mm-hmm. machine of 4chan, and then you know the internet itself, by which things like Pepe the Frog could spread all over the world in lightning mm-hmm. speed. And so they kind of, mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. only were they practicing the, 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 the kind of art of magic, but they had the, this, this medium by which to propagate these empowered symbols and, and to, inf, inf, you know, to kind of uh, augment people's consciousness together at the same time, which is just like, mm-hmm. holy crap. And we didn't even see mm-hmm. it. People didn't even see it. No, happen, people, right? people did not see it coming. The thing is the internet is a lot faster 
sort of than previous modes of, of yes. communication of this sort. But that's all it is. Um, the American Revolution was generated the same way. It's just that the, the hot new technology in those days with the printing press, mm-hmm. okay, and pamphlets and broadsheets and flyers served the same function that websites and, and forums serve now. And that, that um, in fact, as, as printing presses became widely available outside of government control, in which happened largely in Europe in the 18th century, before then it had been fairly strictly regulated. In the 18th century, the printing press goes, goes feral, and revolution after revolution after revolution after revolution. Magic was fairly widely practiced in those days, too. So um, the... The thing that made the Keck Wars, I think, most fascinating, the two things, on the one hand was that it had that, um, you know, the internet, basically, the, the printing press on roids. Mm-hmm. And you know, this, this, this incredibly fast, incredibly effective means of getting everything into circulation at once. So there was that. But the other thing, of course, is the internet has another feature, is, which is that um, it, tends to leave, it tends to leave tracks. Mm. Where, um, you know, when bro- a lot of, you know broadsheets that came out of Ben Franklin's press in colonial America, um, some a few copies survive of this and that and the other, but they were being used to things like for things like lining pie pans. Mm-hmm. Okay, so right. <laughs> um, it's hard to trace. Whereas in a situation like the Keck Wars, sitting here at my computer desk, I can go through the through the the you know to the archives of the Chans, and I can go to archive.org and things like that, and I can literally track the whole thing. And so that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, it, it's also the case that the internet has kind of relieved us of a lot of the gatekeepers. And so, you know, it might have been the case that Benjamin Franklin mm-hmm. could participate in that kind of mimetic revolution, but there were many people who couldn't. And now, it, yeah. now in this case, you know, if you want to, mm-hmm. you can go play in 4chan and be part of this kind of... A uh, very confusing space, right? So there's it, there's a way in which the medium is the message, right? Like the uh, in, in in the American <laughs> Revolution, Marshall McLuhan, yeah, yeah, yeah. In the American uh-huh. Revolution, like it was elites writing broadsides of like their ideas about what politics should be, but in this case, it's the excluded people of the internet, kind of like I don't know. There's less. Uh, there's a lot more chaos in it, which is fascinating. Yes. Now, now the thing is, it wasn't just the elites in the American Revolution. You have to remember a lot of the a lot of the people who made the American Revolution work. Um, they now, you it wasn't the poor, it wasn't the really excluded, but it was a fairly broad sector of society that had the the basic education and access. I mean, because Ben Franklin didn't write didn't write all his own stuff for the printing press. He was a professional printer. He would print broadsides for anybody um, who was in on roughly the same site he was. Right. And there were a lot of other guys who were doing exactly that same thing. And so, you know, it was it and that, that itself was revolutionary because, of course, you know, go back another couple of hundred years. And, yeah, it was just the elite. And so you have this mm-hmm. process of increasing access to the tools of to the tools of, dist- of the distribution of ideas. And an enormous amount of the history of the last 400, 500 years has been profoundly shaped by that gradual spread of those tools, whether we're talking basic literacy, whether we're talking um, access to information resources by way of original things like public libraries, um, whether we're talking about access to, reprodu- to methods of reproduction, um, whether that's print, whether it's a printing press on the corner, whether that's a mimeograph, that was a huge thing when it hit. 
when people could actually do their own mimeograph their own broadsheets their own things you know and now we have the internet and and computer printers and things like that which can just which have taken it to an extreme um yeah so you have this the the internet is is the culmination of a trajectory basically well and it, it, there's no reason to suspect it's going to suddenly stop right like it's not like this is going to be like uh, th- this was kind of i mean was this kind of more the coming out party of this mode of producing mimetic and magical influence or was it like a kind of weird coming together of events that allowed this to play a part in the 2016 election like i imagine that in 2020 like they're not just putting down their workings right they're gonna do something else again or, or what's your what's, what's your sense of what, what what my sense is at this point and this is based on what's actually happening right now what we're what we're seeing is um all sides are picking up the same tools. Mm. Now, not all of them are doing it competently. I've I've, re, I've been doing a series of essays actually critiquing um, a set of workings that are being done by the Democrat by by a group of Democrats to try to to try to oppose Trump. Mm. And um, it would be nice if they were doing a competent job of it, but they're not. And so I'm using, I've been using that as a teaching, basically a teaching moment to 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 get across some ideas of basic magical theory. But you know, I'm sure there are Democrats who are actually paying attention. Mm-hmm. And who who aren't stuck in some of these self defeating habits that are so common these days? But so what's being what's happening is that everyone's making a rush for the same tools, mm-hmm. and so to some extent, 2016 was a bit of an anomaly because there there was magic of a sort going on all sides, but it was um, what what the military theorists call asymmetric warfare. Mm-hmm. Because the the Chans, the all the people on the alt right, they were using one set of tools with very distinct positive very effective tools and then there was the stuff that was being done by um in the clinton campaign because you know magic is can be very effective but it can also be very self-destructive it becomes self-destructive if you use it to pretend that everything's okay and a huge amount of elite culture in america today consists of ways to stop noticing how bad things have gotten you have all these people doing, um, well, they call it mindfulness meditation. What happened was they took uh, one particular kind of Buddhist meditation, took all the spiritual content out of it, and turned it into a non-chemical tranquilizer. Mm. And you have people doing this stuff by the hour. You Corporations are teaching, uh, having classes for their employees because it makes them you know, more docile. <laughs> it, makes, it makes them calm. It makes them not you know, notice that they're wasting their lives uh, for the benefit of the corporate masters mm-hmm. um and, and you have all you you have the this sort of this sort of uh, yoga light being taught these days again all the spiritual content is cut out it makes you very very mellow it makes you calm it screens out um all of the all of the flashing red lights and the sirens that are telling you things have gone really wrong things are falling apart in important ways and that's the kind of magic the people on the clinton side of things were doing all the way up to the election Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great book by Bar- Barbara Ehrenreich called Bright Sighted, where she talks about the downside of the cult of positive thinking. And you can if you take that book and apply it to the 2016 election, you will see another of the very important ways that the Democrats shot themselves through both cheeks. Um, they basically spent all their time convincing themselves that they were going to win, and to the to the point that they stopped, they forgot that they had to convince the voters. Mm. And the voters had their own ideas. 
And what we're seeing right now is a struggle among various factions in that in the Democratic Party between some of them who are just doubling down on that and saying everything is fine and Trump. The only thing that's wrong with America is Donald Trump. Right. And if we just go back to the same failed policies we've been pursuing for the last 40 years, everything will be fine again. And that's not going over very well. And then you have you have people, you know, you have the Bernie Kratz and you have some of the some some of the rising young radical Democrats who are out there saying, no, um, this was a wake up call. We actually have to stand up for our ideals. We have to stand up for the for the ordinary people, not just the interests of the managerial elite. And they're getting places. But that's that's still going to be fought out. My guess at this point, and I, of course, I don't know, but my guess at this point, given the way the Democratic Party is is fluffing things, is that Donald Trump will win, will win re-election in 2020. And when he does, that's when you're going to see a colossal nervous breakdown on the left. Mm-hmm. And out of that will come, I think, the, the moment where people will actually say, okay, we actually we can't just keep on doing the same thing and expecting different results. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's... Uh... One thing that is striking me as you're as you're speaking about this is like, you know, as we said before, there's a way in which these people who are participating in the in these campaigns are already practicing a form of magic. They're trying to influence people's consciousness. Very much I so. wonder to what degree because uh, something we talk about in the show is like, you know, the, the kind of insufficiency of a materialist worldview uh, to, mm-hmm. with regards to certain, you know, aspects of experience mm-hmm. And exploration. And it's like, will the political actors that are able to act in apt like without needing to depend on a materialist worldview have an advantage in the kind of mimetic magic warfare of the future kind of campaign politics now that the kind of central sense-making institutions are breaking down do you have any any kind of thought on that Mm -hmm. Very much so. Um, yes, I think you're quite right. I think that those who can, those can, who can adjust to the to the fact that the, I mean, the materialist worldview is it's not false; it's incomplete. They're just leaving out too much. It yeah. works within its own context. And people who grasp that, uh, the, the most obvious advantage they have is that they can use techniques that the materialists can't, because the materialist is going to say, "Oh, well, yeah, I can use this meme, but." I, but I, you know, I just have to. I have to rely on the ordinary methods of people perceiving it, getting it on the internet. The mage is going to say, "This is a sigil. I can project energy into this and have it affect people's thinking, even if they've never seen it." Mm-hmm. And it works. That's the thing about magic. Uh, we we have a little acronym among among um, practicing mages these days. TSW. The polite form of that is, "This stuff works," and it mm-hmm. does. Okay, and so. They basically people who are well, people who have a pragmatic non-materialist worldview, not people who have a dogmatic worldview, who say, you know, who are saying, well, I'm like the the ones who insist the material world is just an illusion, and we have to, mm-hmm. you know, transcend that illusion. Well, that's fine. Go ahead and transcend the illusion. The rest of us are going to have a are going to have a party. <laughs> um, right. But but yeah, those those who can combine effective material action and effective transmaterial action. Those are going to be the ones who have the wider range of strategies, the more effective toolkits, the more powerful magical workings, and the greater rate of success. Mm-hmm. And th- there's one other thing that's crucial and refers back to something we talked about a little while ago, which was the, this, this sort of radical moral dualism. We are, we are right and goodness and truth, and they are evil. Mm-hmm. Okay, If you convince yourself of that, and you convince yourself of the the ruling mythology of our modern age, the myth of progress, the idea that whatever you like is inevitably going to win in the end. 
Okay. Um, you're doomed because, and, and specifically you're going to run into the, the kind of thing that's causing so many shrieking meltdowns on the left these days when reality fails to do what you tell it to. Okay. The great advantage that, that the, the chans, the alt-right had in this, in this struggle is that the left cannot, cannot even think of the possibility they can lose. Mm. I mean, we, they can have setbacks, okay? It can take a long time for the struggle, but it is central to their worldview that they must win. And therefore, they assume the universe is going to cover for their mistakes. They assume that their good intentions will always work out because, you know, history, the arc of history bends in the direction of justice or whatever, you know, claptrap you want to, you want to use. Um, mm. The alt-right knows they can lose. They know they're in a fight. They know they have to take advantage of every opening that's available. They have to defend against everything. The left doesn't know that yet. And mm. until the left grasps that they're in a fight, they could lose comprehensively, permanently. They, mm. they, could, be, they could have their butts kicked um, once and for all. Until they grasp that, they're going to be like any other overconfident competitor in a situation, they're gonna, and they're going to get their butts kicked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really well said. And I think that that's part of the kind of explorations we've done on the show is that like, mm -hmm. we're heading towards a kind of choice point, I think, mm -hmm. as far mm -hmm. as are we, you know, we're going to commit to a certain kind of future society, and, and they'll be very, very, very different. And it really matters much more than say, like a presidential election in 1970s did, in terms of like, the outcome for the next however many generations of human experiment or even that the human experiment might continue at all. And so I, I and I feel like the left just doesn't kind of get like what's actually on the table. And I'm curious if, if you, if you see anybody on the left who does, or like, is this a really, again, another asymmetric kind of relationship? I, I have encountered people on the left who get it. They are tearing their hair out in clumps because there are not many of them and they run they constantly run into this assumption that, well, of course we're going to win. Well, you know, that, and, and that not only are we, are, is our cause going to win, but we personally are going to win. We personally are going to get all these benefits and all these perks and all, you know, nothing bad can ever actually happen to us. And the people on the left, I know who are watching this and just going, you morons. Mm. And, and it's not sinking in. And, and it's understandable because um, we're dealing here with massive cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. And here again, I think it's the mythology of progress that's doing it. Too many people have bought too heavily into this notion that history is a one-way street toward whatever they like. And that, that you know, the progress is going to take care of it all. Mm -hmm. That, you know, progress is the, is the modern uh, pseudo-materialist version of God. And they worship, they worship progress on their knees. Yes. Yeah. And, and there's also, I'm curious what you think about this whole, like, you know, there's this 2012 uh, mythos around the consciousness culture and there's still this kind of like mm -hmm. sense of the evolution of consciousness is kind of taking us to this better future inevitably or something. What, 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 how, do, how do you factor that into? Um, I would refer to that as stark staring crazy. Okay. First of all, evolution does not mean progress. Evolution does not mean things getting better. Evolution means adaptation to conditions, and that's all it means. Talk to any competent biologist. They, they're 
possibly tearing their hair out about this thing too. Um, evolution is not progress. There is no reason to think that there's a that there, there's this permanent progress of consciousness. We haven't progressed in any sense that um, in, in terms of consciousness. Come on. Um, just as one example, um, compare the last round of presidential campaign debates to the Lincoln-Douglas debates from 1858. Okay, mm. the Lincoln-Douglas debates were made to a bunch of, of working-class Chicago guys, voters, ordinary voters, and yet these were um, Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, and Stephen Douglas debating the issues of slavery, and they were intelligent, they were thoughtful, they were well-spoken. They yeah, took like three hours long, too. strong <laughs> position. Exactly. Yeah. And and they're still worth reading today. You read yeah. them going, wow, that's good. And you think of the vacuous stuff that passes. We have not progressed in consciousness over that, um, what is it? Yeah, um, 150 years now. We well, have uh, degenerated. Uh, okay, well, I'm just gonna I'm gonna like uh, push back a little bit just because I'm curious to see where this Please goes. Do. Like, um, you know, uh, I think people who have this perspective might say something like, "Yes, well, there's a kind of deterioration uh, within th those contexts where they're having the debates, but you know, over here in Burning Man, for instance, we're really pushing forward into new frontiers of human understanding and human consciousness, <laughs> all this kind of stuff." Uh, <laughs> At Burning Man. No, but come on. There's nothing that goes on at Burning Man that didn't go on, on a reasonably sized Roman orgy in the in the second century BC. Different drugs. There's probably different drugs. <laughs> different drugs. That's all. Yeah. yeah, I mean, come on. I I remember I remember when it was LSD. Oh man, I saw I saw the universe open up and this incredible thing happened. And it's it, it, it's okay. It's called a hallucination joke. You'll get it. Vitamin E. You you'll get over it. Um. You see, that's that's the thing. People get the the myth of progress is self reinforcing because people will look for anything that they can say. Oh, you see, this shows that we're progressing, and ignore the fifteen dozen other things that show that we're actually sliding down the slope. And so, um, the thing is, if you look at the history of civilizations, and this is kind of a hobby horse of mine these days, precisely because there's all this drivel about you know the the evolution of consciousness. What happens? Civilizations rise and they fall, and the psychology, the consciousness, the mentality of people in that civilization goes through predictable changes between the rise, the crest, the decline, and the fall. We're, in, we're doing the same things in different ways. We've got different tools. We've got more toys. Um, but we're actually going through a set of, of cultural, intellectual, emotional, psychological, consciousness-related changes that were already familiar in the time of the Babylonians. So does this, you know, so, so we, we, we need to get over this notion that we're smarter than everyone else because we happen to live later than they are. Yes. And, they and, and I would say that there is, like you said, with Obama, this kind of power of hope. There's a kind of incantation of progress that typically in recent history has not lined up with like a kind of political will to then actually make systemic changes that might benefit the whole instead of, you know, partial uh, elites. And so, you know, uh, I think I, I think we can grant that, like, this whole myth of progress is, you know, incomplete. But so is the myth, perhaps of dissolution, right? Like, they're all stories that we're trying to, like, apply to the world. And, and it's to the degree that we are kind of flexibly able to move between them and, and pragmatically deploy them, that really makes the difference. And so I can imagine somebody 
you know, with that perspective, deploying a kind of like half ironically a, a myth of progress as an incantation in mm-hmm. order to create the context oh. for real change. Uh-huh. Is that, mm-hmm. is that, is that um, the problem is, yeah. yeah. Um, yes, but the problem is that the myth of progress has been deployed for a couple of centuries now to block change. Right. The idea is we don't have to change. Progress will take care of it for us. You don't have to change anything you do. Just wait for progress to solve it. Uh, the Wobblies used to have that lovely song where the chorus rang, uh, you'll get pie in the sky when you <laughs> die. It's a lie. Okay. <laughs> Nice. And it's the same thing. The, the sky we're talking about, of course, is outer space. Now, that's the particular place where we're supposed to get the pie. Um, yeah, cue Elon Musk, mm-hmm. for as long as he stays out of prison on fraud charges. But mm-hmm. um, basically, yeah, the, the, it's, it's a way, it's exact, it serves exactly the same function as the Christian mythology of the second coming. I mean, Jesus will come and fix everything. Therefore, you don't have to and you aren't allowed to change anything now. And so in the same way, we have this we have this daydream of the Star Trek future where um, consumer goodies come out of replicators and everyone gets to zoom across the planet and everyone's happy and everyone's wealthy. And all of that serves to distract attention from the realities of our time in which, of course, a lot of people are in really bad shape and things are getting noticeably worse. So you could use progress for that purpose, but you but it's a very, very that would be that would be difficult. It could be yeah, dumb, but it would be. It, yeah, heavy risk. You'd, the likelihood of it blowing up in your face and actually supporting um, the status quo is extremely high. This is why, and precisely, this is precisely why a lot of what has been what has been done very effectively, um, including by Donald Trump, is to do the opposite. To right. say, you know, we slid. We make America. Yeah, make America great again implies it's not great anymore. It implies that things have gotten bad, and that's why that was such an effective slogan especially among those who knew that for them and for their families and communities, it was true. Yes. So um, he went against, of course, you know, he, he nodded to the, you know, to the myth of progress saying, well, yeah, we can make it great again. We can return to the route of progress. For term, he was admitting that progress wasn't happening. Mm-hmm. And that was both, that was explosive and extremely effective. And so I have found it very right. useful in, in storytelling to use other metaphors, to talk about cyclical history, to talk about dec- Decline to right. talk about and, and to get past the, the idea that decline means apocalypse. Mm. What does it okay. mean? What does it mean instead? Decline means that simply things get worse. It doesn't mean they all blow up at once. It means that things get lost. Energy consumption, say, declines. Um, we have fewer technological toys. Population declines. Um, it means contraction. It means economic contraction. All of, you know, it doesn't have to end in a sudden explosion. That's part of the same mythology, which is a mythology of don't look at the future. Don't think about the future. It's either going to be a glorious, the glorious proletarian world of progress, or it's going to be we all die at once. Either way, don't think about the consequences of your actions. That's what the whole game is about. Because if people actually stop and look and say, hold it, what's going to happen if this keeps on going the same way for more than a few more years? They're going to demand change because it's very obvious that things are not going well and that they're getting worse, not better, and that specific people and specific classes are benefiting from the fact that things are getting worse and not better. So, so yeah, 
This is why decline, to my mind, is one of those explosive ideas out there. Not not apocalypse, not progress. Um, Decline, contraction, things getting worse. Not just for a while, but imagine them getting the worst for the rest of your life and the rest of your great-great-grandchildren's lives. Yes, and worse, particularly as you say. That's how civilizations go down. Yeah, yeah, particularly as you say, though, in the Uh the, the kind of economic dimensions. It does strike me that, like, we're in a unique position given the technology Mm -hmm. and... Exactly. That whole aspect of what we've been playing with in recent history to kind of like navigate that quote unquote decline in a way that might actually allow for a quality of life and general well-being that wasn't possible even now for most people. Exactly. And that, and that preserves some of the best achievements in the last 300 years of industrialism. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. But to do that, you actually have to think about it. You have to admit it. You have to admit that it's... You have to admit... Yeah. You have to admit that you can lose. And again... As we were talking, it's the thing that the political class cannot conceptualize. That's the reason why they're going so um, bonkers. Every time Trump um, Trump scores a victory, and he scored quite a few of them at this point, they do, they dissolve into shrieking tantrums because the world isn't supposed to work that way. The world mm-hmm. is supposed to give them everything that they want. Oh mm-hmm. well, the universe is, the universe doesn't care. You know, this is um, to, to borrow an to borrow a, a, a major source of pop culture memes these days, it's H.P. Lovecraft's um, great, great literary thing. You know, indifferent, indifferentism. The world doesn't care. When you look out at the stars, maybe the stars are looking back at you, but they're going, what is that little, those quick thing down there? Oh, it's called the Earth, right? <laughs> and that sense that you don't matter in the, great stream, in, the, in the great scheme of things, that you are not the center of the universe, that the cause is not going to rescue you from the consequence of your own bad ideas. Um, that's shattering, but it's also freedom. Well it's, well, it's a kind of freedom, particularly from the kind of uh, straitjacket that most of our culture finds itself in. I would say again, though, it, it, is, it is also not in some fundamental way true. Like you can take on this perspective of cosmic indifference, but you know that's, mm-hmm. a, that's another perspective. It's one that seems to be an interesting antidote to the you know, uh, uh, blinders that some parts of our culture currently have on. But there is, I, I, yeah, I just keep wanting to p- push it further to another integration level or, or some kind of coming back or I don't know. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But the thing is, very few people can hang out for long at that place where, op- where opposites are true. Mm. Okay. Very few people can stay there for a long time. It's a good place to go. It's a good place to go and to spend time there and to get used to the fact that all of our, con- all of our stories are just stories. All of our narratives are just patterns in which we try to fit the blooming, buzzing confusion of the world we experience. But maintaining that for any length of time is difficult. At a certain point, you know, especially if you have to roll up your sleeves and get to work, you need to, to choose a story. And knowing that it's not infinitely, not, not absolutely true, say, this is close. This one measures my experience close enough that I'm going to run with it for now. And so the ability to go back and forth and to change stories actually is a very important part of magic. And there's a sense in which magic is simply a, a way of storytelling. You tell a story and you make it so convincing that people believe it. And if you can tell a story that includes, yeah, if you can tell a story that includes things that are part of their experience that every other story denies, then you've got a very powerful story. And you've got a story that may, that a lot of people may find convincing. And again, that's something Donald Trump is actually fairly good at. 
Right. And it's also why I think understanding, at least in theory, the how magic works is so helpful for navigating the world today, because you're going to have such a competitive advantage if you can sort of leap between narratives and see the world from rad- in radically different ways, knowing that, you know, nobody has any kind of ownership over the truth, but that there's just kind of ways of seeing and stories that, you know, some are interesting, some work better than others. So. Yeah. And the crucial thing is that some work better than those in, in particular situations. Okay. There was a run about 300 years there where the myth, where the narrative of progress really worked extremely well. And we need to honor that. Mm. Um, we seem to be in a time now that it's not working so well. It's had a good run. Um, other stories may be better suited to our needs right now because they may fit our experiences better. They may highlight things that we need to pay more attention to. And so, you know, all stories are stories, but not all stories are created equal. The Democrats right. are finding out right now that their story right. just doesn't work yeah. because it doesn't convince anybody or it convinces them, but it doesn't convince the voters anymore. Yeah. And so that's that, you know, that's the other side to the, well, it's all just stories. Um, you know, some story at, at, a, at a given place or time, there are stories that fit better than others. There are right. stories that lead you to good, to constructive results, to the results you want, let's say. And there are other stories that we can lead you to some very bad places. Well, so, and then, okay. So this is maybe an interesting place to kind of draw the conversation to an end, which is like, uh, okay, say that I'm somebody who genuinely, or at least chooses to act as if I'm concerned for the future of the planet. Like I would prefer that there is a future in which more people have a higher quality of life like mm-hmm. across all classes, across all kind of identity groups, whatever, like what is the kind of story or relationship to the world in terms of narrative arc that you would imagine being pragmatically useful to adopt in order to help be a part of making that happen if it's a possibility of happening? Well, the first thing you, the first thing you need to do, I don't think there's a single story. Yeah. I don't think that it's not that one stands out, but there are a range of possible stories. And first, the first thing that I think they would have to include is the, po- is the possibility that you could lose. Mm. And the second thing they'd have to include is the fact that things actually have, have gotten bad. It's we're not, there is no outside force pulling us toward this better future that you imagined. Nothing is going to save us. Nothing is going to do it for us. Stories that tell that, that say that, are stories that encourage people to sit down and do nothing. That's mm-hmm. what they're there for. Um, but so it would be a story of, of challenge. It would be very possibly a story um, like the kind of thing that Joseph Campbell used to write about, where um, you, know, you leave the place you are. And you go on a there's this long transformative journey, and when you come back, it's not the same place anymore mm. because you're not the same person. Mm. So I think possibly a, a story of quest and discovery, mm. especially in a situation like this one where we don't know um, how to do it. We don't have the, we we don't have a blueprint for the society you have in mind. Certainly not one that fits within the the actual the actual what what seem to be the actual limits of the planetary ecology and our resource, our available resource base. So quest, search, um, loss and recovery, there's all kinds of stories that could be woven around that. But it's got to start with the, with the necessity for change and the necessity for letting go of some things mm-hmm. and being willing to accept loss and being willing to accept um, limitations in order to make something better for the future. 
Thank you, John. This is a really engaging conversation. I feel very like lit up by the, the just the conversation and the ideas that you've you've shared. So thank you, thank you, thank you for coming on and, and talking. Well, thank you, very, thank you very much for having me on. I mean, I, I enjoy being on podcast, um, but I, I appreciate I appreciate being on. It was, we've had a good conversation. Thank you.